This show is brought to you by hospicechaplaincy.com, promoting excellency in professional hospice chaplaincy. You can find the Hospice Chaplaincy podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Music. For more information, you can visit hospicechaplaincy.com. We are your hosts, Joe Newton. And I'm Saul Abema. Thank you for joining us and listening to today's episode. Uh, today we are talking about the family of the hospice patient and the struggles they go through. I want to start by a poem I wrote 10 years ago after a visit with a hospice uh, patient and family. I titled it, To See the Sun Again. Tashina prays. She prays for hope. She prays for courage. And sometimes she prays that her mother's situation may end quickly. It's hard for her to see her mother like this in hospice care. For the past two weeks, the mother's been crying a lot. Tashina knows why the mother has been crying. She doesn't see her son anymore. The son has been arrested three weeks ago and is in jail. But she doesn't know. How can I tell a dying mother that her son is in jail for gun possession? She wonders. How can I tell her that she might not see her son, my brother, again? Won't it break her heart even more? He was a good boy. Maybe he was too stressed of seeing mother like this, but nobody knows. And now the mother remembers the son and she cries. Maybe she thinks he left because she became a burden to him. Tashina walks in the room to comfort her. She looks at Tashina in the eyes and says, Your heart looks broken. Tashina leaves the room with tears filled in her eyes. She picks up the Bible and reads it to keep from crying. How can mother tell that my heart is broken? She wonders. Sometimes mother just knows. I tell her. I comfort her. Will you pray for me, she says. I join her. We pray for hope. We pray for comfort. And most of all, we pray for God's will to be done. Thank you for coming, she tells me. Then I go to my car. But my heart has not left. I wonder if the mother will see her son again. I wonder if the son will get to see his mother again. What kind of finality will it be for this patient? I pray one more time. I pray that the mother sees the son again, to see the son again. You see, when a member of a family is dying, unique problems arise. These problems usually begin at the time of diagnosis. Communications often become difficult as family members experience the different stages of grief. Just like in this poem, where Tashina usually would have shared this news with mom that, you know, our son, uh, your son is arrested, but now she cannot. She feels she has to keep it a secret because her mom is dying and she doesn't want to make the situation worse for her. And that is just an example of what some of the hospice patients go through. 
What do you think, Joe? I had the occasion yesterday to uh, meet this young woman in a uh, support group. And we were talking about grief and things like that. And then she said, I've had a really bad week. And I said, what's going on? And she tells me that she just found out that her mother has stage four pancreatic cancer and it has spread to liver and other areas of her, her body. And she is a, uh, she's well versed in medical situations and she knows what's going on. And of course she is, you know, the initial grief is just overwhelming, just overwhelming. I mean, tears. And then I see in her that she is struggling to be able to talk to her sisters. And because her sisters believe that all mom needs to do is go and get a little chemo and everything's just going to be fine. And she knows that in her soul that she's preparing for her mother's death, quite frankly, and early starting, starting the process. Yeah. Um, she's angry, a normal response, grief in response to grief. Uh, she's, she does not want to be the one who is in denial like she believes her sisters are. And she is just at the beginning stages of this. And it is, it is definitely, it is as tough. we know, it is, a, it is tough and it the is a process. Sta- yeah, the, you have to juggle so many uh, emotional challenges, especially after learning of the diagnosis. And yet some family members think the moment uh, they choose hospice is like giving up on hope. Mm-hmm. giving up on the oh, passion. Oh, absolutely. So yeah. you can imagine, you know, the patient and the family and the children just wrestling with this new um, new knowledge of the diagnosis. It's hard. We run into that all the time with all of the new, new patients, I believe, that we bring into hospice because uh, I've been known to go out and try and get consents, information gathering for the, the families to know what kind of hospice they're going to be dealing with because they have finally reached the understanding that their loved one is really has a, a, a life-ending disease. And they find it very challenging to make that decision. It is. To say, we're going to do this. I mean, we've run into families all the time that says, well, thank you for coming and really appreciate the information. But we're just going to try one more thing. And, you know, we could come in and just say, you know, that's foolishness, but... The families have to do that is what their it is. process. They That's have exactly to go right. through that process. You see, in addition to grieving for the potential loss of the loved one, there's also the grief for the death of the family unit as it existed before. Mm-hmm. Although the family will continue after the death, it will forever be changed by the death of their loved one. It's you an evolving. Imagine. It's an evolving process we have when we start talking about loss and death and. And then and, and it begins right then and there. I mean, uh, going to back to that, that woman I was talking about who was just finding out about her mother's diagnosis, mm-hmm. uh, she hasn't even told her husband. She hasn't told her kids. This is really the beginning, and it's, it's, it's her trying to get her... To work it out. It's her head wrapped around it, as yeah. we say. You know, yeah. Trying to get it all understood, what it was for her to be able to say without just being angry and upset and everything of that nature to share this with her, of which I, of course, she knows she has to do, but she's got to be able to, you know, now be there for them. And that's kind of like how the family unit works where uh, someone always has to be the one who has to tell and they have to be the one who has to be able to, uh, you know, there's someone, it's a very hard process. 
It is. Uh, first of all, the patient has to, as a patient, you just receive the news that you have a terminal diagnosis. So that is that news alone break, shatters your world. You know, um, mm-hmm. now you have to wrap your head around understanding this terminal diagnosis, and you have so many questions. Could there be a cure? Could I beat mm-hmm. this? Um, you're thinking about so many things that you know. Then doing research, and then sometimes the doctors recommend treatments and all. So many things going on. On top of that, the emotions of the family. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, if if the patient who just received this news is 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 uh, with with children or married with kids and all that kind of stuff, telling your loved ones the news that you just had from the doctor can be challenging. It puts not only the patient but the whole family in a serious predicament. They, it it, it, it depends on how they how they react. Of course, so yeah. I mean, you know, families will course go through the normal grieving process and this has been my observation as i've watched families as things have progressed after upon learning what the diagnosis is and what the options are uh sure they're going to try first everything and anything they can to offer this patient who can hopefully still be able to make their own decisions on which way they want to go the hard ones are when you have the patient who is more than ready to be on hospice, but then is always worried how the family's going to react to this, the news. And for the, for the hospice patient to say, I want to do it. And they're saying, no, there's, it, it becomes quite challenging to offer hopefully some good sound advice and some good sound support for both both entities, the family and for and the, the patient. patient. And that's why counseling uh, is really helpful. Absolutely. Uh, in this kind of situation, this is where chaplains and the psychosocial team can get in because family members can be at risk for depression, anxiety, social isolation, and suicide. Mm-hmm. And uh, so here are some of the questions um, uh, that you can ask to identify at risk family caregivers. You can ask questions like, do you feel overwhelmed as a caregiver? And um, do you feel isolated? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Because this is what depression does. You get cornered. You feel like no one understands you. You don't want to talk to anybody. Your friends call, let's go out. You don't want to talk to them. No, because they they don't want to hear it anyway. That's what you think. That's what you think. So you're isolated. So you have, as a, as a therapist, as a chaplain, you have to assess for that. Do you have other family helping you? Do you feel prepared for your loved one's death? Have you felt intensely sad or anxious recently? Those questions can help to weed out where they are mm-hmm. mentally, emotionally, uh-huh. uh, spiritually, psychologically. Yeah. And as, a, as you walk into the situation, you're going to be doing this uh, analysis, if you call it that, evaluation assessment yeah. uh, by asking the appropriate questions and developing a re- some of these things won't be responded to for a while, for a while unless it really looks pretty intense or critical at the time. I just had the occasion the other day to uh, go to a death and the wife lost her husband 60 some years uh, best friend 
only one she ever really did with. And I, you know, I started asking questions to the family. Well, how's mom going to be doing after this death? And the family is exceedingly supportive and just a remarkably wonderful family. Uh, he'd only been on our service for two days. Mm. So we really didn't have the time to do a lot of this work ahead of time. And those things happen. It just happens that way. He got very sick and got and died real quickly. But I was talking to the family about mom. Mom was one of those who was not really one of those who joined things. So she would, I look at the one where you talk about here, feeling isolated. I know she's going to feel isolated. And I worry about that upon everything settling down and she's just falling into a routine at home. I pray that, you know, the family will be there, but the, you know, the family has their lives too. Yeah. They knew that dad was very sick. You could see that they were coping very well with their, their loss, but they, you know, they got to focus now on mom. And that's one of the things that we, uh, we hopefully as uh, professionals walk into situations and, and ask not just how you doing, but how are you doing? Yeah. And really in intentionally ask these questions about, you know, is mom going to be here by herself? Do you think that's a good thing? Is there only some, oh, is she going to be the only caregiver? If like, and if they say yes, you, you know, and they analyze and say, you really think that she can handle it? You know, do you, are you aware how much work it takes to caregive these, uh, an individual? So, I mean, we have a very, very important role in asking good, honest, open questions. We have to, we have to. Because, Absolutely. Um, that's when we avoid uh, diving deep into those things and asking those important questions, we are not helping. We are not helping. Sometimes a family member can be depressed and they don't even know it. Oh, absolutely. They might be overwhelmed and they don't even know it until you ask the right questions that it, it helps, you know, make them realize where they are emotionally. You become that sounding board. So uh, the family will need a lot of counseling. Um, they need support like nobody's business. Yes. They will need encouragement to maintain hope, to maintain positive attitudes so they continue caregiving. Let's take a little break. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. So here are the emotional responses of the family as death nears. One, in addition to grieving the impending loss of a family member due to terminal illness, the family member is also grieving for that part of him or herself that will be lost with the death of their loved one. The family member also grieves for the family, which will be forever changed. It is a stressful time for the family as they struggle to cope with the impending death. It's interesting because I have had the occasion to uh, see what people, what, what has happened when this is going on in the family. Uh, I mean, it, with, even with my own mother, who says, you know, who's very healthy and very vibrant, says, you know, I just wonder how the family's going to be after I die. You know, if we still gonna, are you still going to be a family? You know, because I'm not around, so therefore, and whatever else. Yeah. That is a significant concern. And then when you're talking about family members, uh, they probably have no idea how things are going to be different initially. Yes. 
And they're just going to be struggling with that. And, and, and especially when you start talking about some of our families that we deal with who have broken relationships, who have loved ones who are estranged. How are they going to, how is this, you know, and then, then, and then they hear that their loved one is terminally ill. Yeah. How, you know, I know that what I've heard in the past from people saying is that they get angry. They get angry. It's tough. It is. Because, you know, how can this happen? Because it's going to make our family so much different now. Mm. And that is a very challenging part of our care that we give to a family. It, cha- and it changes. It changes the family uh, forever. And, Absolutely. And that's the hardest part for the patient themselves, but also for the family. And then the process of waiting for the impending death to happen calls upon the family to have some adaptational tasks. The first adaptational task is remaining with the patient. This may involve making sure the patient is not lonely and involving the patient in the family experiences. Oh, I can't. I, don't go any farther yet, Charles. <laughs> no problem. Because I tell you, that right there, involving yeah. the patient and family experiences, because families, individuals, I, you know, they're afraid to cry in front of their loved one because their loved one is dying. So therefore, they kind of back away from that and not do all those things uh, that they might have normally done. They tend to forget what was normal family activity whether it was loud noises, music, TV on, things like that, because all of a sudden their loved one is ill, very ill, and now it's got to be soft and do all that, which sometimes is appreciated by the patient. But I'm a firm believer that you know, if it were me, I'd want my music going. Yeah. I'd want my kids around making all kinds of noise, making wisecracks and everything of that nature. Yeah, you want to be part of it. I just all. want to be part of it. I want to know that it's the same thing the same normal and that's what they're going to carry on is yes. what you want if they're having a party in the house you want to be there that's right have Sitting a party there. with me there even yes. if i'm even if i'm dying yes have that party yeah uh and that's where you know where you're saying where you know some people are lonely or want to be alone anyway yeah you can always you know it's one of the things that we offer in our hospice you know of course volunteers to sit with people because mm. they do like that people like it that helps. even though they want to be alone sometimes. And that's right, not being lonely. They want to be still thought of and appreciated, even though they might not be able to communicate or even respond. Yeah. The second adaptational task for the family is to remain separate from the patient. The family members must also begin the process of separation. This may involve exploring the possibilities of life without the dying family member. The family members have to begin preparing for life without their dying member. This can be a very difficult task if the family members were heavily dependent on the dying member of the family. And especially if the dying member of the family is the breadwinner. The breadwinner, the matriarch, the patriarch, yes. the one who made all the decisions, who organized everything, and now all of a sudden that person is going to be gone. It's tough. And, and other families have to go through a growing process with that. And it's not, it's not something that, uh, that happens quickly. Mm. Uh, they try hard. I know that families try hard. And, you know, they, they first have to grieve the loss of that family member not being there. Mm. 
It's hard. I mean, I just and it's, it's, it's hard, hard to reinvent yourself. It's hard, oh, so they have point. to reinvent the family makeup, especially if the dying member, like you said, is the matriarch or the leader of the family. Uh, the family has to find a new normal, a new way. Absolutely and, right. Uh, that process of reinvention can be really, really, really hard. And sometimes people have to step up that never have had to step up before. And that, really and that is, can yeah. really that can cause some issues with others within the family because they think they belong in that role. Yeah. And then somebody else assumes it. Yeah. Uh, hopefully families will recognize the fact that this is something that they need to work on together. And then, so it doesn't cause any discontent upon the patient's death. That's true. And that leads us to the third adaptational task. And that is role adaptation. Each family member has to adjust to the needs of the dying member of the family and um, sharing responsibility. That's hard for a lot of people. <laughs> sharing <laughs> things? Come on now. <laughs> uh, but this, this, uh, this one goes into a, uh, a situation within, within my own family, which I always, you know, I don't want to... After my dad died, we all had to kind of like, you know, figure out where we all live. Where we were, where we were in the family situation, uh, you know, you have the certain people who are the ones who are supposed to be the POA and take care of all the things, and then you've got those who kind of just sit back and kind of sit back and do nothing. I mean, that happens so many times. I hear too many times when I've talked to a, a daughter says their brother doesn't do squat, you know, doesn't do anything, and I'm like, come on now, you're picking on us men. Uh, but it's true. I mean, the role is difficult for, I believe, for men because caregiving is not one of the things that, that unfortunately is very well taught to the male species. <laughs> uh, you know, you have some who are exceptional yeah, and who do things, will do anything and everything for their loved one. And you've got others who say, well, let my sister do it or somebody else do it. But it's a different role that they become part of. And mm. sometimes it can become, you know, pretty negative and that's unfortunate because that's not helping the patient the fourth task is dealing with grief this involves dealing with all the emotions associated with the impending death the hospice team can encourage family members to express their feelings or offer emotional support as needed i don't think that, that happens enough for families because families don't always want to acknowledge the fact that they're grieving yeah and as we all know because we do this work, grief is so different to each person. It is. And then to be able to sit down and say, uh, because you also, also often hear, well, you're not grieving right because you're not doing it the way I'm doing it. And those are really very, can be very contentious discussions when, you know, one family member can just cry at a drop of a hat and one who has never cried. And so, and so does that one who's not cried, is they're not grieving? farthest from the truth but you know sometimes families will find themselves in that situation and they think that well this one's got a real problem because they don't even know what they're how to grieve and that's really putting a, a value judgment on something that you've, you know, you can't say because you're not living that person's life and that can be a that can th that can really be difficult in a family situation and you see and that is the issue we people don't want to accept that we are different 
that yep. we view things different, that we grieve differently. Even if we are from the same family, brothers or sisters, uh, people have to understand that we each deal with issues in, complete, our, own in our own way. And yeah. that own way has to be respected. Name it and nail it on the head with that one. That's the respect aspect of it. The fifth adaptational task involves coming to terms with the death. The family members have to begin anticipating life without the dying person. An increased awareness and acceptance of the death minimizes the grieving process after the patient has died. After coming to terms with the death, the family can begin preparing for the funeral and other important legal documents. Uh, that's, that's, that's a lot of work for a lot of families, quite frankly. And it uh, takes a while to get to that level. Oh, it is. And, you know, you will get into a situation and by that into a family situation. And you'll recognize those who are really doing quite well with it and have really been able to, and you've realized that, okay, they've been around the, 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 the dying patient for maybe the entire illness. And then you've got the one who comes from out of town and they're, they're having, it's a whole different dealing with this because it's almost like a sudden death to them, even though they know that their, their loved one is dying because they haven't been there to see what was going on and haven't participated. And they've got their own issues, whether because yes. uh, I was so busy, I couldn't get here to, to help take care of our loved one, whatever it may be. And so, I mean, this type of thing of getting accepting and understanding that ahead of time that, you know, it's very obvious that, you know, so yeah, I know my loved one's dying. That, that's, that's a really, to me, that's a trite answer to the question. Cause yeah, I know, you know, uh, we all know that someone, but when do you really know? When is it that you really know? And that is a tough acceptance in your life. It is. It, you know, because nobody wants to really accept the fact. And that, and that even goes with the patient. It is tough. Yeah. And that leads us to the sixth adaptational task, and that is saying goodbye. This is an important task for both the patient and their loved ones. Sometimes the dying patient needs permission to die and to let go. That is such a, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure there isn't a hospice chaplain or a hospice social worker that uh, doesn't encourage their families to uh, give permission. And it's powerful. I remember uh, one time I was called uh, to visit uh, this patient in a nursing home who was dying. And uh, the daughter actually wanted a priest, but we couldn't find a priest. Oh, you're so, as good as a priest. So come she on said, now. Come on, come on, yeah. So I went by and... Um, we were at that level, the patient was beginning to die and going through the anxieties of dying. And I asked the daughter, you know, um, you can give your mom permission to go, you know, just let her tell her it's okay to go, all that kind of stuff. So we, uh, she said that and then we read some scripture and prayed. And then as she let go, she died. And, uh, and that is the power of permission. Absolutely. And um, sometimes family... The dying person needs to hear that, you know, you're going to be okay without them, that you will survive. You'll miss them, but you, you'll be fine. They shouldn't worry about you. And um, that is a powerful task, especially when the family member is able to get to that level to say goodbye. It's okay to go. 
I always encourage families when it becomes near the time of death, that whenever they leave the room, wherever that, whenever they go home for the evening or whatever it is that they're going to be doing to say goodbye to their loved one. Because we never know when that goodbye really means that they are going to let go and let, let God do what God does best. And to let them know that they're going to be okay, give them permission and say goodbye. Those to me are the significant, important things to give that gift to your loved one. It is. And as these tasks are being completed, each family member hopefully will attempt to finish unfinished business with the patient, expressing feelings, resolving past conflicts, tending to last wishes, will create the closure that makes the final separation more peaceful and bearable for the family and for the patient. Oh, I've heard that, so I've seen that many times, Saul, so where families will do their finishing business. And uh, I mean, I get, you know, I get the goosebumps when I start remembering families who have had to do so, just one certain little thing. And because always everybody's questioning, what is the unfinished business that needs to be done here to allow this person to, to die? And families just love to know that they've done something to make things peaceful and good for their loved ones. So how can chaplains help family members as their loved one is dying? Because, because of the complexities of the family system, make sure you have a good assessment of the family. A good assessment of the family helps to provide understanding in the makeup of the family, family values and beliefs, coping styles and abilities, religion and philosophy of life, previous experience with death and loss, characteristics of relationship with the dying person, amount of unfinished business with the dying person, mental health, specific fears about death and dying, previous experience with and personal expectations about illness and death, family's fears and current emotional state regarding the patient's death. All this have to be assessed to provide good care. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, Saul, I look at this list and I think to myself, you know, if I was just getting into this business and I looked at what it is that I had to do, I figured I would have to be there with that family for days and days and days to get all this information. Hours upon hours. And I'm like, then I, then I sit back and I look at it and I analyze it and I remember how it is that I identify with families when I'm assigned a family. And this all comes easily. One would think that, oh, this is just very, it's, <laughs> looks it's an enormous amount. Yeah, it looks like it's an enormous amount of time and effort. And am I ever going to get all through this before this person dies? But if you go in there and you know what it is that you have to come to grips with here, because you, you walk in there and you pray to God as you're getting to that door and you're knocking on the door and you're saying, God, help me. And that's really all you need is some of that help. And you walk in there and you need to make that relationship with the family at the get-go, right at the understand very beginning. Them. Understand their values, understand their makeup, right at the beginning. Those are important ask steps. Them, ask them those, easy, those, those, those tough questions because you're trying to build a trusting relationship and they're wanting you 
to answer questions because you know there's going to be after you just go in there and start asking questions, they're going to ask you questions of what to see what you can give them. Yes. And, you know, they want to be able to trust you as well. Uh, I don't care what your faith tradition is when you walk in there. When you go in there as the chaplain, as the spiritual guide, you leave all that other stuff behind you. You go in there as a, as a, a pardon the expression, an agent of God mm. and be the presence. And they will, and they will open up to all of these things that we're looking at yeah. that you just listed. They will come to you and tell you about their family values and what they believe. You don't really have to ask them a lot of questions. Yeah. You can go into there and say, you know, how are you coping with this? And then they're going to go, well, we do it this way or we do it that way. And somebody does it different than me. Yeah. You know, I, I, so many times I said, well, you know, my, my sister over there, all she does is go in the bathroom and cry. Or my brother goes outside and he smokes a cigarette, something like that. That's how they're coping right now. Yeah. Okay. That's how they cope. How do we deal with that? And how is that okay with everybody? So the chaplain has to recognize the family as a system. Absolutely. Meet with the entire family together if possible. Assist the family in addressing painful feelings of anger, guilt, and disappointment, but also help them to recognize positive feelings of love and affection for their dying loved one. I had the occasion one day yeah. one day to go in and meet this new family. And this patient was really actively dying when I was invited into the family and allowed to go in there. And it was a very, they had an enormous amount of questions for me. I didn't even get to go in before I sat down with the entire family surrounding me. Mm. And they're throwing all kinds of questions at me about what to anticipate as their loved one dies. Mm. And so we had a good conversation there. We're doing everything about it. We're talking about their fears of his death and dying. We're talking about expectations, if there were any, because, you know, their loved one, then they were, they were just trying to grasp their grief, and this was going quick for them. And one of the things that came up was relationships. And I start, and I, I you know, I, I try to look around the house when I walk into a home, and this was a home, and there were these pictures of this little grandson all over the place with his grandfather and his grandfather was dying. So I look, I look around and I, you know, I make these observations to myself and you know, they were a very, they had their own specific religious background and they knew all of this stuff and everything like that, but they weren't sure on how to handle what was going on with dad, with grandfather there. I started talking to them. I said, you know, tell me about this relationship with his grandson. Oh man, he's, you know, ever since, you know, the little one has been born, I mean, dad has just been, you know, that's the apple of his eye. And I'm saying, that is cool. Oh yeah, he'd take him, you know, and he was from, you know, I think the, the child was now either three or four. I mean, and he would take him to the park, he would play with him, he'd do all, take him to the swimming pool, stuff like that. I mean, he did everything with his grandson. And, you know, just that, that wonderful experience that, you, that a grandfather wants to have. And so I asked the family, well, where is he? because he wasn't there. The grandson wasn't there. And they looked at me and they said, do you think it's all right for him to come here? And I said, my personal opinion, as I've observed this, is, you know, as we know, and, and flat out said to them, you know, death is a part of life. You have to recognize the fact that what relationship this grandson has, and is he going to feel 
some sort of unhappiness because he hasn't been able to visit with him. Mm. And before I could get done with all I was talking about, the father ran out the door to go and get his son. He knew what I was talking about. Powerful, powerful moment. Powerful moment. You see, legitimize and normalize the feelings of the family members. This will help reduce anxiety. Help families realize that crying or being upset are normal reactions that need to be expressed. Chaplains can also help family members find new ways of coping with the impending loss. And part of that, Saul, is to acknowledge the fact that it's happening. Yes. The honesty part of it. Because important. then that is very important because, you know, as well as I do, that there are times that people are still surprised. There's no reason for them to have any surprise. The surprise they should it's have happening. is how good a death it was and how peaceful and wonderful it was. Encourage family members to express their feelings with the knowledge that emotions that are processed contribute to healing. Affirm their love for the dying person. Mm -hmm. They need to understand that their suffering has meaning. Point out that they, they hurt because they love the dying person. And that's important. Exceedingly important for, for everyone. Uh, oh, I don't want to cry for, you know... I've had so many, so many occasions where I can't go in and see my loved one because I, I don't want to cry in front of them. And, you so know, and I know it'll cry. upset them. Well, yeah. that's not being honest. That's their problem, their yeah. issue, and not the loved one's issue in my mind. It's important for them to be open in front of their love. It's all mm -hmm. about, it's because of love yes. that they're feeling the way they're feeling. It's that's because right. of love. And when they know that, I think it sets them free to be free around the patient. Identify their feelings and call sorrow what it is, hard and painful. This will help normalize their reactions to these feelings. Provide a calming presence. Do not panic during their outbursts. Help them realize that although it is painful now, it will not always be like that. Let them know that their present reactions are normal and there's hope of a time when the pain will be less. Help them to recognize the joys and the pleasures that are available. Too much sorrow so soon can create detachment from the dying person while there's still some satisfaction to be gained in their relationship with the dying person. Try to establish a personal relationship with each member of the family if it's possible. Within their limits, help the family to express their anticipatory grief. All you got to do is talk to them. So talk to them. Talk all you got to them. sit down and talk. That calming presence, oh, I can't tell you how many times I've been part of that where I just sat there and people are going crazy. Yeah, that's a real generic term. But I mean, they're, they're just, they're trying to figure out what that pain is and how it hurts and how much it just overtakes them and that's what we do we be that presence be that presence maintain open communication help the patient's family members identify and cope with the challenges and the demands of the living dying interval if possible educate them about the emotional challenges and coping mechanisms available 
refer family members with evidence of pathological responses to illness and death to appropriate mental health professionals and resources. Amen. Thank you very much for joining us and for listening to this episode. This show is recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studios, and our engineer is Brian Mackender. Thank you for listening.